Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 7, A Life in Slavery. Today's episode is a brief digression from the Lincoln series, and it is an episode that I've long considered, but have not finished until now. In the following episode, I wanted to try and place the experience of slavery as a central element in the overall Civil War podcast to describe why this was such a vital moral issue, why it was something that people could not let go. I do intend to expand upon this in the future, but I would also recommend, if you are interested, in following up and reading some of the narratives that we have written by slaves themselves. Uh, for example, there's the narrative of Sojourner Truth. There's 12 Years a Slave by Solomon Northrup. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs. Uh, Frederick Douglass wrote three different biographies. And last but not least, American Slavery as it is, which is a testimonial written by abolitionists, witnesses, former slaveholders, current slaveholders, and basically anyone else who had something to say about slavery. This literature was circulating widely at the time. This was part of the American culture. And it was made for one purpose, to communicate the realities of slavery so that people could not look away. And I am trying to bring home and describe that reality to you, the listener, here in the short space that I have. Again, this is not going to be everything that I have to say about the subject, so I will return to it in the future. Today, however, I wanted to try and place you in the perspective of a slave. So without further ado, here is A Life in Slavery. Today we look at George. That is his name, and his only name, as far as he knows, received from his mother at birth. He thinks he was named for his father, a man he never knew. He awakens not long before dawn. The spring weather here in South Carolina is warm even in the morning. It is sowing season, and he must be in the fields ready to work before the overseer arrives, or face punishment. The whip. George knows the overseer's moods, and that grim-faced man will check the cabins on his way. Anyone caught dawdling behind the group without very good reason will likely face a few lashes for his trouble. The overseer might use his weapon just to make an impression, even without a reason the slaves can determine. The women on the plantation, too, are spared neither the work nor the pain, of course. Like the menfolk, they may be kept in the fields winter or summer, rain or shine. Even when heavy with child, they are usually ordered to the day's work. The sick or injured are generally driven on to labor as well, and must take care of themselves as best they can. That is not on George's mind right now, though, in the early morning gloom. These realities are too ordinary for him to even take note. He splashes water on his face from a gourd kept to satisfy some thirst, for the slaves don't own so much as a clay pitcher. He makes ready. That is a simple matter of changing shirts. He keeps some tattered old clothing to sleep in. Newer clothes, part of the small, very small, allotment provided by the master annually, are worn for the day. He must conserve them, for they will not be replaced until next year. Old torn clothing gets turned into rags, blankets, or whatever else might be needed. The weave, at least, is sturdy, if coarse and uncomfortable. Some of the raw cotton may have been harvested from this very plantation. Then it was sent forward to England or Massachusetts. George has only heard strange stories of these places, that they have thousands of workers plying looms and no slaves at all. He can hardly imagine such a thing. But perhaps one of those workers took cotton from this very plantation and fashioned it into the clothing that he wears now. 
Male slaves, such as George, wear loose shirt and pants most of the time, usually white or gray or butternut articles. The women receive loose-fitting but modest dresses, sometimes even in other colors. Most of the adults manage to have shoes as well, but they must sometimes go without to conserve the leather. Children wear no more than an oversized shirt until they are old enough to work. George lifts his hoe from its accustomed place and sets out for the fields, where he joins the train of other slaves. They are not always friends, they are not entirely family, but they are a community and they work together, sing together, play together, and pray together. Day in and day out they live side by side, and they have a common threat to unify them, whatever their personality conflicts. They reach the field soon, for they lay right next to the slave quarters. Most of the plantation's acreage is given over to the corn and cotton, leaving very little other land around it. Each spring, the slaves must quickly plant the two great crops, and ensure both come in as bountiful as possible. The corn, in some fashion, forms the bulk of their food supply. Slaves know that the master won't be particularly eager to make up any shortfalls. The cotton, on the other hand, pays the master's profits. The slaves care very little for the stuff, but the planters do, and they enforce the strict regime largely to ensure those profits keep coming. George, an experienced field hand, does not mind the sowing season much. Slaves naturally have their own preferences about their work just like anyone else, and George personally finds the spring planting far more bearable than the prime picking season, or the midsummer heat. He just personally finds the sowing a little bit easier to deal with. When fall comes, they may have to stay in the fields picking cotton until very late in the evening, when the moon rises high in the sky. Nonetheless, he expects to do a great deal of work in the sowing. The slaves must hoe and plow the fields and then plant all the many, many rows. The remainder of the spring and the summer will be given over to caring for the crops and weeding thoroughly, day after day. All morning they work, clearing the long rows of rocks and tilling the soil and finally planting seeds. The cotton comes first, and the corn will be sown in a month or so. This is the annual rhythm of the plantation, and has been ever since George came to live here. As the day warms up, he allows himself just a moment to think of his home. In Virginia, he belonged to another man. He found the breezes cooler there, and the work a little bit less taxing. But the day he was sold off was also the last day he saw his mother. He can only dimly recall her face, vaguely, after the passage of many years. He does not expect to ever see her again. Seeing the overseer approaching, he quickly makes work for himself. It's unwise for any slave to look too relaxed. The last time Caesar got distracted, for instance, the overseer gave him forty strokes for his trouble. So the work gang usually keeps her head down, day in and day out. Even so, the overseer knows they aren't very dedicated and must drive them hard and with constant oversight. He knows how to use that whip in several ways. He can deliver a painful blow without a full brutal whipping. Oh, he'll do that if he catches them slacking, or if he thinks they possibly could be slacking, or perhaps just to remind them who's in charge. Around noon, for the slaves know very little other than the hours as set forth by the sun and the moon, the slaves all have a brief respite for lunch. This is a little more than corn and homegrown beans from their own gardens. The masters don't provide the latter either. But now they must work through the hottest part of the day. The work will not let up for anything. In the middle of all that tedium, however, George catches the glint in his friend Franklin's eye, and the two begin a game with the overseer, trying to call him from one group to another. Although the overseer bears the whip, the man is also just an employee, 
and if he doesn't perform well, will be dismissed. The slaves might only dream of such a luxurious station, but it does give them ways to toy with the whip-wielding tyrant. In this particular game, each gang of slaves tries to get the overseer to come over and attend to some imagined or invented problem. Might be a suddenly broken tool, which of course necessitates that someone go back towards the cabins and fetch a spare. Or they could pretend there was some issue with the field and ask for orders. Naturally, they appear eager to serve, but pretend complete ignorance of what they rightly ought to do, and the more the overseer explains, the less they seem to comprehend. And then another group would try to kidnap the overseer, with some additional problem only he could attend to. If done right, by the time the day's work was done, the slaves would have run the man down crisscrossing the fields. Still, George and all the slaves know not to push too far. If angered, the overseer will find a way to take his wrath out on someone's body. Every grown man and woman, and not a few of the children, bear scars from some whipping or another. But regardless of their game or not, the work goes on until it is very nearly sunset. Then the overseer sends them off, never entirely happy, but satisfied just enough for today. It is not all field work for the whole time. Some of the men who know their craft might be said to carpentry or smith work. Others will haul water or chop wood. One way or another, it will go as late as the overseer demands, and sometimes he demands labor until the moon rises. Walking back to his cabin, George takes a moment to idly wonder what the outside world is like but the plantation very nearly is his world. He's seen very little of anything else, excepting the little bit of Virginia and the marshy part of South Carolina that he happened to pass through, brought here by a slave trader. Even on his own time, he cannot leave the plantation without a written pass, which any white man may demand at any time for inspection. But to get one, of course, he must please his master enough that he will take the time to write one out. Although George has no more than contempt mixed with fear towards the overseer, which generally settles into a pained toleration of the miserable circumstances, his relationship such as it is to the master is a bit more complex. On the one hand, he knows what his owner wants and knows that open defiance risks a violent reaction. He has seen those who tried to escape, here or another plantation, hunted down with dogs or beaten within an inch of their lives. He knows of incidents nearby where masters gunned down slaves merely because they could, or beat them until they could not recover in a drunken rage. Although he does not entirely comprehend it as a rational or deliberate business choice, George recognizes implicitly that the master has hired the overseer specifically to do the difficult, cruel work of dominating the slaves. Besides, why should a rich planter bear the miserable heat of the long summer in the fields? George's owner and all his like fellows can be the one to give gifts when it suits them, without dirtying their hands. There are limits to how far the slaves can push on either front. But the slaves do recognize they can beg some favors from the master, while the overseer must only be endured. Either man could turn violent, but it is easier to manipulate the one by putting on a show of love and appreciation, the other with a show of obedience. George has as much gratitude as profits him. No more but he would never dream of showing that cynical side towards his master. Still, though, this does not bear on his mind too closely, not today. This is Friday, and tomorrow is Saturday, so the slaves will only work a half day, more or less. George does not have much in the way of finery, but he will go and wash the newest clothes he has. On Sunday morning, the slaves will attend church, though that is little more than a clearing where the slaves from several planters meet. 
but around noon that day, he will be wed to Mary. He met her while on an errand to a neighboring plantation and soon asked her to become his wife. Even living on neighboring plantations brings an unpleasant distance to their relationship. Still, he can hope to receive a regular pass to visit her. He can hope that their union will not be broken up and that one of them will not be sold off again. But that is a mere hope. Mary was already a bride once, but her last husband was taken away never to return. Their vows, in recognition of this harsh reality, will read, Until death or distance do you part. And if the two have children as they hope, those two may be sold away. Nevertheless, Sunday is as much a day of rest and joy as the slaves can hope for, and so they treasure the time. Apart from mending clothes, fishing, gardening, or patching their ramshackle huts, they all treasure the hymns of religion that bind them as a community. The masters hire preachers from time to time, and while the slaves find some arrogant and most hypocritical, they do hear the message. Few of the field hands can read, but sometimes one can, or the house servants have been taught something, and that lucky fellow is permitted to read the Bible to their brethren. Though even then, only under close supervision from a white man. The house servants in particular have an importance for the field slaves. Cut off from most of the world, the house servants hear every breath that escapes the master's lips, and you can be sure that they will find a way to slip anything exciting over the whole plantation with a speed that will make the swiftest telegraph man envious. George himself might spread news to Mary when he can see her and receive whatever she has to share in return. So it might go from plantation to plantation across the whole world. Lately, the word is that the masters are all burning hot over some people called the Republicans. Everyone understands they live north of all the slaveholders, but exactly where the lines are, no one here can say. The world they inhabit isn't marked out on a map, and if there was one, the masters would certainly never let them view it. And yet, when George finally finishes what tasks he must do that evening and goes to his rest, he dreams of that invisible map connecting him to liberty. His rational mind knows the long odds of escape. He does not know precisely where state lines start or stop, and the laws written down on paper in some place called Columbia mean nothing to him. He knows only that it would take days, perhaps weeks, just to reach his birthplace, the old plantation where he was finally summed from his only family. He knows that doing this alone would be near impossible. He knows that traveling further to the half-legendary free soil, where there are no slaves, would be an even tougher feat. He dreams of it all the same. Even during the light of day, when the labor becomes too hard and the punishment's too severe, he tries to imagine some way, any way, just to be able to accomplish it. So far, he has not come up with even a scrap of a possibility, but he dreams still. He only knows farming, but he dreams of having Mary, some children, a small farm, and maybe, just maybe, even a pig. He would ask no more of life given the opportunity, and there is not one master in all the South who would offer even that to him. And he knows it. As far as George can see, this is how life has gone on seemingly forever. And yet nothing human is eternal. Change is coming. It's coming even now. George would not believe it if you told him. But within a few years, he will be clad in a soldier's uniform. He will hoist a rifle on his shoulder. And he and his fellow former slaves will be leading a new American revolution. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this particular episode. 
Next week, we return to the series on Lincoln, where we will see Father Abraham take on the single most powerful politician in the United States. On paper, he's going to lose. But there's the thing about politics. One must play a long game. And Lincoln played a very, very long game.